What comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? When someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, what image comes to you? What ideas, what thoughts, what words come to you? Whether you are a proclaimed follower of Jesus or not, I would say everyone in this country, and certainly people who are sitting here this morning, have some idea, some image of Christian. It may be positive, it may be negative, it may be something in between or a little of both. But some idea, some image of Christian comes to you. And I think there is something of that question of what it means to be Christian that is embedded into this passage that we've read here from John's Gospel. This is still the first Easter day. In that morning... Mary goes to the tomb early, probably with some other women. They find the stone rolled away. She runs back, gets Peter and John. They race to the tomb, and they look in. The grave clothes are there. Jesus is not. They scratch their heads, wondering what has happened. And Peter and John leave. Mary stays. She has a conversation with angels and then Jesus. And then he says, go tell my disciples. And she runs back and tells them. And now it's evening. And John says that the disciples are locked in a room because they are afraid of the Jews. Can you blame them? I mean, the people who have crucified Jesus, what would make them think that those same people aren't going to come after the closest associates of Jesus? They're afraid. You and I would be afraid. You and I would lock the doors, probably double lock the doors. And in the midst of that, Jesus appears. No wonder Jesus says, peace be unto you, because I'm sure they're beginning to freak out. You know, I mean, who expects a dead person to come to life again? You know, we look at it and think, why didn't they know it was Jesus? If someone happened to you, would you believe it? It, it's, It's the most astounding thing they could ever experience. And here is Jesus, and he shows them his hands and his side, and they realize this is Jesus. It's that moment I can imagine the disciples saying, okay, Jesus, this is awesome. Let's just sit down and we'll just hang out together. And it'll just be us. And we we can keep the doors locked. It doesn't matter. Maybe we'll go grab a few family members, but it's just us. And this is going to be awesome. We'll build a little village outside of the city. and, And we'll just hunker down and we'll put walls around it. And it'll just be us. It's the human temptation. Maybe they were thinking, okay, Jesus, this is awesome. Jesus is alive. What's that going to mean for us after we die? But Jesus has other plans, other ideas for them. And he says to them, I have come back to speak to you. I have been resurrected. I'm appearing before you for one reason. As the Father sent me to you, I'm sending you to the world. The message of the resurrection is never, let's see how tightly we can draw the circle and everybody be safe. The message of the resurrection is always, who can we tell? Where can we go? 
How can we share the message? It's the same thing he says to Mary at the tomb. Go and tell my disciples. Now he says to the disciples, go and tell everybody else. And what it means to be Christian is somehow wrapped up in this idea of going and telling that Jesus is risen. Now, each of the Gospels give us some form of this idea that Jesus appears and now people are to go and tell. But they all describe it in a little bit different ways. And in John's Gospel, Jesus' message, what what they are to do as they go out, is one thing. Is I'm sending you for this purpose. If you forgive people's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive their sins, they're not forgiven. Now, that's a tough one. Because at face value, it sounds like Jesus is saying, we hold the power of forgiveness for other people's sins. People who are followers of Jesus... It seems like he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus and you say that person's sins are forgiven, they are. And if you say they're not, they're not. I mean, on face value, that sounds like what he's saying. Now, of course, if you know much of the Bible, you're scratching your head thinking, that doesn't sound right. Because scripture tells us again and again, only God can forgive sins. Salvation comes only through Jesus. People can only be set free from their sins through the grace of God. We don't have the power to say your sins are forgiven and it's done. So what's he saying? What's he telling us? What's the point of it? I think what he's saying is, I want you to go to each other and I want you to go to other people and be my agents of forgiveness. I want you to go and be a catalyst for people to accept my forgiveness. I want you to tell people how I want to set them free from their sins. How I want to give them the life they were created to have. How they can experience life and joy and peace and love and grace and all the things that deep in our hearts human beings are yearning to experience. I want you to be the means through which people understand who I am and what I've done for them in Christ. You be agents of forgiveness. I think it's the same thing Paul is saying when he writes to the church at Corinth in the second chapter, in the second letter, when he says, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation and we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though he were making the appeal through us. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to be an ambassador through whom the appeal of Christ about reconciliation is made. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus uses forgiveness as the basis for what we are to do. Because it's at the heart of what Jesus does. Jesus comes to forgive sins. Jesus comes, and in that forgiveness, he comes to set us free from our sins and to reconcile us with God. 
And without forgiveness, we're chained, we're enslaved, we're weighed down with the burdens of our sins and our failures and all the ways in which we have become disconnected from God. And Jesus comes so that we might have reconciliation with God, so that we might be restored to relationship with God. And the importance of that is that it's only in relationship with God that we can know life as we were created to know it. And Jesus comes to offer that. And now we come to each other and to the world as agents, as channels, as the means for people to understand that and to experience that. It's a, it's a high calling. It's a glorious calling to say we are agents to bring good news to people. It's also a huge responsibility, and sometimes we shirk from it. Sometimes we get so enamored with ourselves, both individually and corporately, that we don't really do that much with everybody else. We're just thinking about how I can survive, how we can survive. And quite frankly, if you boil it down, it implies we're not all that concerned about anybody else. They're on their own. I got enough stuff to figure out the way I am. We have enough stuff to figure out. We don't have time to mess with other people. Sometimes in the back of our minds, we are thinking... Maybe these people aren't really deserving of God's forgiveness. I bet if we thought about it for a couple of minutes, maybe it wouldn't take a couple of minutes, we could come up with some people, some names of people that we don't think are deserving of God's forgiveness. Maybe it's because we're afraid people are going to take advantage of it. That people are going to, we're, we're going to say, look, in Christ you're forgiven, and they're going to accept that, and they just go on doing what they want to do. And they keep coming back to it again and again. And maybe we're hesitant to offer forgiveness, to be means of forgiveness, because people are just going to take advantage of it. Here's the honest truth. The irony of that kind of thinking is that that's exactly what God could say to you and me. Who of us is deserving of God's forgiveness? And who of us hasn't taken advantage of God's forgiveness? And sometimes it's just fear. We're afraid. We're worried. If I give away too much of myself, if I spend too much time with other people, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get what I want. Sometimes it's hard. A couple of weeks ago, there was an op-ed piece in the New York Times written by Peter Werner. Uh, and it was... Um, He's an evangelical who is talking about, uh, was talking about the, the state of the evangelical church in the world and some of the things that we've done. And, what, and he talked about the, the public persona, at least, of some of the evangelical church in the world. And he said that since the mid-1970s, one persona of the evangelical church, unfortunately, probably the persona that the media has latched on to most, is this sense of of the church at war with the culture. And, and it, it comes out as the goal of the church, the purpose of the church is to squash the culture, to crush the culture, to, uh, to condemn the culture, 
so that people will turn to God. And he said when he talks to the leaders of the evangelical church, all of them admit it's not working very well. We're losing the battle. And many people in, in sensing the loss ratchet up the condemnation. And he suggests that maybe there's another way to think about this. Instead of feeling as though and sensing that we're at war with the culture and we're trying to crush the culture and that's our calling, maybe an alternative view is to be present in the culture to love the culture and to love people and to care for people and to be an influence in the, in the world. And, to, and to, to try to influence culture, not by crushing it, but by loving people. And that means that we are going to be going out into the world and into places where people might be indifferent or even hostile to the gospel. But who needs it more than people who are indifferent or hostile to the gospel? And he says... I think the church has the choice. We can either be a court that hands down sentences of judgment. Or we can be a field hospital in the edge of the battle. Now, that doesn't mean that we simply say... To, to the world and to each other, it doesn't matter how you live. God doesn't care. You know, it's just, it's going to be all right. Just do whatever you want. God's fine. Don't worry about it. Not at all. Because Jesus doesn't just say, if you forgive people their sins, they're forgiven. He also says, if you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, if it were me and I were writing this, I think I'd leave off the second clause. It would make interpreting this passage a whole lot easier. I have a book in my library, Hard Sayings of the Bible. This is such a hard saying, they don't even put it in that book. <laughs> I went to the book. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's not in the book. What, what more could be more difficult to try to understand than that? And people have all kinds of theories. Most of the time, writers in this part of John just ignore it. Just act like it's not there. Because it's hard. What do you do with that? What exactly does that mean? And as I said, there are a variety of theories, but it seems to me that there are at least a couple of things going on here. One is there is, it speaks to the responsibility we have to be the presence for Christ in the world. Because in a sense, if we don't become channels of forgiveness for people, how will they ever be forgiven? How will they ever know? Isn't that what Paul says? If people don't go and tell them, how will they know? But there is also a part of this that reminds us that God doesn't ignore sin. God doesn't just look at evil and say, well, that's the way they are. God is serious about sin and evil. It is not a call to, this call to be agents of forgiveness is not a call to just say, we're just going to let whatever happen happen. It doesn't make any difference. Live however you want, do whatever you want. God doesn't care. Because the reality is, people who are living stuck in their sins are in bondage to sin. And more than that, they are cut off from God, their creator. And if anyone is ever going to experience joy and peace and life and all that we were created to experience, 
We need to be reconciled to our creator. And that's why Jesus comes and goes to the cross. And it's serious. Because there are people who come to the place of saying, I don't want to have anything to do with God. As Lewis describes him in The Great Divorce, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those God said, to whom God says, God says to them, your will be done. Jesus tells the disciples in Luke 10 when they go out uh, and, and bearing witness to him. And he says to them, if, a, if a people in a town reject your message, then shake the dust off your sandals and move on to a place that will accept it. And sometimes we have to come to the place where we do that. But I think inherent in what Jesus says here and the rest of scripture, if we come to the place of doing that, we better make sure we have some pretty compelling reasons. And even more, we do that as a last resort. We do that with the heaviest heart of grief and pain and anguish. It is Jesus praying over Jerusalem, lamenting over the Jerusalem that has rejected him. And he says, how often I've wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks and you won't let me. And he weeps. It's breaking his heart. It's not, you reject God? <laughs> Can't wait to see what you're going to get. But rather, God, be merciful. Don't give up. Be compassionate. And maybe when we are rejected and our message is rejected, maybe it's in that moment when we really prove that we are an agent of forgiveness. That we stick with people just a little bit longer. I mean, isn't that what we saw in Exodus 33? In Exodus 34, God describes himself as he does a number of times as God of compassion and love, unending faithfulness and mercy to generation after generation. And in this passage of Exodus 33, he's having this conversation with Moses and he says, I'll have compassion on who have compassion and mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Often that's interpreted as I will withhold compassion and mercy anytime I want to. I think God is saying, Moses, don't tell me who I can't have compassion, who I can have compassion on, who I can't. If I want to be compassionate toward those people, I will. If I want to forgive them, I will. If I want to have mercy to them, I will. Because we know when we read the scriptures, God is far more compassionate and merciful than any of us will ever dream of being. And it's that heart of compassion and love for people who even reject him. that proves our willingness to be agents of forgiveness. This is the risky part of doing this. Forgiveness is is the risk of love. Any relationship we're in, if it's a healthy, loving relationship, forgiveness is going to be a part of it, period. We all know that. Because human beings hurt each other, human beings disappoint one another, and any relationship... A marriage relationship, a dating relationship, 
husband, uh, parent, child, sibling, friends, doesn't make any difference. If it's a healthy, loving relationship, forgiveness is going to be a part of it. And forgiveness is always a risk. Because when we forgive, we are putting ourselves out there with people. And they may hurt us again, disappoint us again. And we keep forgiving. And forgiveness doesn't mean we ignore the wrong. It just means that we're more interested in reconciliation than we are holding on to a grudge. And forgiveness is always about the risk of love. I think maybe that's why Jesus, when he appears to them, shows them his, the nail prints in his hands and the, the spear print in his side. And in essence, I sense he's saying to them, look, what I'm calling you to do is more than likely going to end in this. We wish that when we love people, when we're compassionate toward people, that they would fall down and for us and say, thank you so much for telling me this is awesome. And sometimes we get to enjoy that privilege. But a lot of the time, that's not the response we get. A lot of the time, it's rejection and it's pain and it's hurt. Because when evil is confronted with love, usually it responds with hate. And often the response to love is not a warm embrace, it's rejection, it's pushing away. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to care. I don't want to know about Jesus. I don't care about God. And it's again in those moments when the test of our love and being agents of forgiveness comes to the forefront. Are we willing to love and be compassionate and and offer the grace of God even in rejection? And I'm convinced that it's at this point when our love and our forgiveness and being agents of forgiveness is most tested that it is most important that we understand the role of the Holy Spirit in this whole process. It seems... It isn't a coincidence that before Jesus sends them out, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathes on them. What what comes to my mind is he talks about breathing on them. It, It reminds me of God breathing life into Adam in the garden when he creates him. It reminds me of Ezekiel 37, as God looks over this huge valley of dry bones, and he breathes his spirit into the bones, and they come alive. Now Jesus breathes on the disciples and something begins to stir in them. And it seems that it it comes to its fruition in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days later, when the Holy Spirit comes in all his fullness on the disciples. And it is amazing the difference in them pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. Pre-Pentecost, they've locked themselves in a room in fear of the Jews. Post-Pentecost, they're out on every street corner proclaiming the name of Jesus. When they get arrested, they keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. And eventually, almost every single disciple becomes a martyr. And their attitude and and their witness is transformed through the Holy Spirit. And the reality is, none of us are good enough, smart enough, loving enough, compassionate enough, caring enough to be agents of forgiveness on our own. This is not going to happen. 
We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's Spirit in us to invigorate us and to give us life and enable us to be agents of forgiveness to each other and to this world. Because we can't do it without Christ. And our prayer every day, every moment needs to be, Lord, keep filling me with your spirit. I surrender more of myself to you. I give more of myself to you. Keep working in me. Keep changing me. Let your spirit keep moving in me. Because I want to be an agent of forgiveness. And I cannot do it by myself. But with the spirit in us, it's amazing the things that can happen. With the Spirit in us, we become the most hopeful people in the world. I mean, there there should be nobody in the world who lives with more, more of a sense of hope than people who are filled with the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. Because we celebrate Christ who conquered death and who overcame evil. It was an answer for sin. And injustice, that's who we worship. And so we go into a situation and and we try to be agents of forgiveness through the power of the Spirit. However people respond, we have hope. Because even if we don't see God at work, we know he's at work. And we believe and we trust. And we have the hope of the risen Christ. And that changes everything. And this call to be agents of forgiveness in the church and outside the church that sometimes feels so overwhelming and so despairing is actually a gift of God. We get to be agents of forgiveness. And whether we see it or not, we believe because of the risen Christ that what we do makes a difference. That our presence in the world is used by God. That our willingness to sacrifice and to love and and, and to go the second mile and to be compassionate and to speak truth and to care about justice. All of the ways in which we become agents of forgiveness in the world that quite often seem like a, a drop of water in the ocean makes a difference. Because Christ is risen and the Spirit is at work in us. It's the mission of the church. And it's a huge responsibility, but it's also an awesome privilege. N.T. Wright talks about when he was a bishop, he, every summer they would take a, uh, a large group of teenagers and go to some of the northeastern cities of England. And they would spend their week in the mornings teaching the scriptures to these young people and in the afternoons doing service projects. And in the evening, they'd have big celebration rallies and, and invite people and try to bring people to Christ. And he said one of his favorite parts of the week was the afternoons doing the service projects. And this one year, they went to a town, an old, one of the old towns in that part of England that was run down. And they went to one of the seediest places in that town. And they began to fix up the alleys behind the streets in the seedy part of town. They began to paint. 
all kinds of bright colors and clean and work. And they put up flower pots all along the street and in that alley. And people began to come out of their homes into the alley, which is something they didn't do because of all the stuff that went on in those alleyways. And they came out and they were a little nervous. They said, are you guys from the government? And they said, how much is this going to cost us? And these teenagers said, no, it didn't cost you anything. We're from the church. This is our gift to you. It's our present. And they were just astounded. But he said, that wasn't the end of it. A year later, they went back. And those same alleys that had been places nobody went, now in those same alleys, people were planting gardens. They were getting together for community barbecues. They were building relationships when before they would just hide out in their homes, afraid to go anywhere. And he said the most amazing thing was that one of the lay workers from their church moved into that neighborhood. And because of everything the church had done, now, when he speaks about Jesus, they listen. And that whole community is being transformed by the power of Christ. As individuals, as the church, we are going to be a witness to each other and to the world. The question is, what kind of witness are we going to be? Do we look more like a judge sentencing people? Or do we look like more like medics in a field hospital on the edge of the battle? I'm praying that God will help us be agents of forgiveness as individuals, as a church, as a wider community. For his glory and for the lives of people. That he loves. Father we thank you for. Your call upon our lives. And upon the church. Give us grace. To with joy. Hear your call. To accept your commission. And through your spirits. Be agents of forgiveness. In, in the church and outside the walls of the church. Through the grace of Christ. Amen.